This episode of the Bicycle Touring Pro Adventure Podcast is brought to you by GoBicycleTouring.com. With more than 700 guided and self-guided bicycle tours available in hundreds of different countries all around the world, Go Bicycle Touring is the ultimate resource for discovering your next cycling holiday. Book your dream bike tour today at GoBicycleTouring.com. If anyone out there is going to go to Morocco, you must go to Marrakesh. It's fabulous. We ended up going on the Marrakesh Express. And, you know, uh, we're riding on the Marrakesh <laughs> Express. It's taking us to Marrakesh. And it's funky, uh, but you have to do it. And it was a great experience just to go on the train itself. Marrakesh is such an interesting place, especially at night. Everyone goes to the big general square at night, and there has there's it seems like thousands of food vendors everywhere, you know, selling their wares, selling their food, snake charmers, and music, and dancers, and, you know, the square is all lit up with these big lights, and the all the bazaars are out with all of their... Um, blankets and they're um, all, I mean, just exactly what you've seen in a movie, that's exactly what it's like six, ten times. Hello, and welcome to the Bicycle Touring Pro Adventure Podcast with your host, Darren Alf. Welcome to the Bicycle Touring Pro Adventure Podcast. I'm Darren Alf. The Bicycle Touring Pro Adventure Podcast is where the world's most interesting and experienced hikers, bikers, campers, and adventurers of all sorts come together to share their stories and teach you how to live an exciting and adventurous life. We've created this show to assist, inspire, and motivate you to get outside, see the world, meet new people, make new friends, and live a life of true adventure. In today's show, we'll be talking with Pat and Cat Patterson, a couple from Oxnard, California, who spent four years riding bicycles around the world. Rather than talk about their whole trip, we're going to be discussing the couple's bike tour through Morocco, and you're going to hear about some of their best and worst moments from the road. Hi, my name is Pat Patterson. And I'm Cat. Cat Patterson, husband and wife. Um, we call ourselves the crazy senior citizen, hardy heart attack victim. Um, and uh, prior to heading out on a tour around the world on bicycles, we owned a real estate company. The idea of going around the world came up like this. In 1988, 89, and 90, I rode a bicycle around the world. And when Catherine and I first got together, we, she looked at uh, this big pile of uh, videos that I had and said, what are you going to do with these? I had no idea. And she said, well, are they in any order? And I said, no. She, being the orderly administrative type, said... i got to take this project on and get this in some kind of order. So we started, and we started at uh, his very first one and watched a video or two every single night for months because he has 104 hours of videos. As uh, we were watching those, Catherine said, I'd like to do that sometime, and it started evolving. My dream after that first trip around was to cycle Africa. And actually, I, uh, I wanted to go from uh, Cairo to the Cape, the, uh, the old traditional route. And Catherine said, wait a minute, why don't we go down through South America and then come back up through uh, um, Africa? And I thought about that for a minute because I've been on the road 
and I thought that would be disastrous. We, we, we live in Southern California, so it would be about a four or five day ride to um, get to the uh, border, and then we'd be in a, basically a foreign country, foreign language. We understand comprende poquito espanol, but, you know, different food, different water, all the problems uh, that you're faced with would hit us in the face after about a week. So we made a little change up. As we began planning, we decided, why not go across the U.S., which is a nice, fairly easy ride and learning experience for Catherine, then uh, hop over to Europe, come down through Europe, then do the Africa leg, and then back up to South America. That's where the, uh, the dream was born. As in all dreams, making a dream a reality is uh, not the simplest of it, but when you have the dream, it, you begin to find that things fall into place, and that's what was happening for us. Obviously, we could spend a whole lot of time talking about your whole trip around the world, um, but I want to focus on your trip to Morocco and, and uh, some of the moments that you had there. Uh, first of all, where is Morocco uh, for those who are listening and might not know, and how exactly did you get there on your bicycles? You mentioned uh, locating where Morocco actually is. It's, uh, it's in North Africa, and Africa is divided into two Africas, really. North Africa is pretty much Arabic people, and in the south, of course, is dark-skinned people. Final day in Europe, we're in Spain. Um, we went across, uh, actually, and stayed in a British, um, I guess it's a colony, the Gibraltar, which is quite quite nice because we could uh, um, speak English in the bars and the pubs and with the people. And we took a, a ride up to the top of the of the rock, rock of Gibraltar, and it's an, it's an interesting trip if you've never been there, but. There are monkeys up there to greet you, and then you can see the city below. It's funny, you have, there's an airport runway, and when you come to Gibraltar, we had to cycle across the runway, so you have to wait if there are any planes coming. They, like, a, like a train crossing, they put a thing down and make you wait. But the weirdest thing, we never thought about this. You get up on the rock, and you can actually see Africa in the distance. It's just not that far. It's actually only um, about a 35-minute ferry ride. Uh, we actually had to go out of Spain because they had stopped um, doing the ferry boats out of Gibraltar at the time. So we did a quick little bike ride um, over to a coastal town in Spain and went from there. Uh, but it was, it was kind of an eerie ride. You know, we just were full of anxiety. We didn't know exactly what to expect, and we were really embarking on a huge adventure in our trip that a lot of our family members um, really didn't want us to do. Um, uh, they were quite nervous about us going to Africa, and, and we were nervous too, uh, but we were pleasantly surprised when we arrived and we rolled off of the ferry boat. Um, people were very nice to us. You know, of course, we looked different, and there were some stairs and things, you know, because I was wearing shorts, and but that didn't really bother anyone. In fact, they were more than friendly. They, some people were even clapping and cheering and rooting us on as we were trying to find our way. Uh, people were actually helping and guiding us to find a hotel. So that was really a great way to start our adventure in Africa. I think people treat you a little differently when you're on a bike. It's, it's different from a, a tour bus pulls in and, and everybody jumps out and they're looking for bargains and everybody there knows what they're looking for and everybody there knows they have a pocket full of money also. So 
there's quite a bit of difference between a cycle tourist and typical tourist, uh, I think. I'm going to go back for just a minute and tell you that we, we uh, took that ferry to Morocco on September 1st, 2003, and the entire trip took us till October 23rd, 53 days to cycle, and we covered uh, 1,033 miles. So it really is about like California coming down the coast, the west coast of Africa. Um, the uh, first stop there, when we got off that boat and down that gangplank that Catherine talked about, was Tangier. It's the it's it's like a it's like going into Tijuana almost. It's a very noisy and busy city and a lot of tourists go there, so there are a lot of touristy things. And we decided to take a day off and, and adjust to the uh, the way of life in Morocco, maybe. And we and we went out to the hotel in the morning. There's a young guy hovering around the front. He had a badge. He said, "I am Mohammed, and I am a guide, a genuine guide from the hotel. And you, uh, I cost nothing. You can pay me if you wish." It's a lot of people say that you can pay as you wish, but that's sort of a custom there. Um, but you know, it was interesting. He bothered us at first and then finally we just relaxed and let him take us. And he took us to markets and bazaars and the old Kasbah and the old city walls and places that we probably would have never seen just walking around. And, uh, also, um, places that the tourists really, really never typical tourists would never get to go to. Uh, it's kind of fun when when we started getting to know him and he got to know us a little bit. He said, "What's the biggest difference between Morocco and Spain?" And and we told him, "You know, in Spain, half the guys there are named Jesus, well, Jesus, but Jesus, and here in Morocco, half the men are named Mohammed." And you know, he, he laughed, we laughed, but it, it's a fact and it's pretty much true. You mentioned that you had some hesitations about going to Africa and that your family was uh, worried about you a little bit. Um, I know as well that. Anytime you go into a new country and and you you don't know exactly what you're going to find there, it's always a little nerve wracking at first, especially. Um, did anything bad ever happen to you while you were in Morocco? You know, we kind of just got sucked into it. We uh, as we were riding into another small town, a uh, young guy approached us, speaking very good English, and asked if we knew where we were going and did we need any help to find a hotel and you know a lot of times we just not that we have avoid that but um you know we're a little cautious about giving out too much information and all that but he was so nice and he said you know he had a friend that he want you know owned a hotel and he wanted us to you know go see the friend and see if we liked the room so we followed him and um it was a great place, and we ended up staying there. We got all settled in, and he wanted to have tea with us afterwards. And so we ended up meeting um, later in the afternoon, and I actually ended up meeting another guy, Habib, who was in a little cafe downstairs while we were having tea, who ended up uh, taking us around. We, he asked if we needed anything, if he could help us with yeah, anything. Yeah, he spoke good English also. And jokingly, I said, well, we would like a, we'd love to have a bottle of wine if we could find it, you know, not thinking that we would, you know, find anything. Just for, for the record, generally, Muslim people don't drink alcohol. Mm-hmm. So that's but you can find, you can find alcohol sure. if you look for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, he said, oh, I know a place. So we walked with him, and he, he took us to a place, and we ended up... Um, finding a bottle of wine. Well, and he told, remember, we, he told the story. 
He said, it's okay for this guy because he's a Jewish guy, so he can sell the wine. It's not a problem. We're not supposed to buy it, but he can sell it. And he was kind of a character. He la- he laughed and joked. And when we got there, of course, it was a, fr- a Saturday. No, Saturday, yeah. And that a Jewish guy's store is closed Friday night from sundown to from sunset to uh, uh, Sunday at sundown. So he really thought that was funny. And then he took us two doors down. He said, "This man keeps it under the counter. <laughs> He's open on Friday night, Saturday and Sunday." <laughs> so everybody, you know, you can work things out in the yeah. world. We got our bottle of wine, and we came back, and by now it's dinner time, and um, the first guy, uh, Habib, had decided that uh, we all have dinner together, and so we said, that sounds great, so we ended up going with them to a little restaurant with another person that they knew who owned it, and in the middle of eating, um, I can't remember which one. I think Ushabe it was Ushabe. Uh, the young guy that first met us, yeah. Uh, he, he said, ooh, I've got to go back to my shop. Something's come up. So he left, and we finished dinner, and Habib wanted to take us out to a nightclub and keep going, and we just said, no, we're exhausted. You know, we've got to go back to our room. But we get back to the room, and we get inside, and... Pat uh, decided to check our bags uh, for whatever reason. I, not that there well, was any indication that anything was wrong, but, you know, he just wanted to make sure the computer was there and that everything was, you know, still in its place. Well, the bag the computer was in, the zipper was broken. Mm. It was like somebody was trying to get in and possibly taken it. Maybe we came back too early uh, and maybe they had to run out of the room. I don't know. Well, the computer was still there. But in searching our other um, our other bags, we found that 100 euros was missing. So we we don't know for sure, but we have a feeling that Bushabe maybe or somebody else that they know that they knew what room we were in. It was their friend's hotel. You know, possibly. I mean, we didn't catch anybody, but we're just thinking that you know maybe maybe one of the group got into our room and took what they could get. Right. They only went for the money, though. The euros. Yeah. yeah, which was our stash, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> when you cycle, we learned this, and we always stashed in two or three bags, and sometimes we put some in the seat post or in the handlebars, you know, right. and cash up and stick it in different places. So if you lose some, you still have some left. I, I think the best part about that evening was probably that we had our first taste of camel meat, and it went well with the wine. Yeah. <laughs> and. Uh, uh, but it was disappointing to us because we really did feel like at least two, the two that uh, Shabi and the guy that from the restaurant, I think his name was Hamoe or something like that. And <clears throat> but maybe all three of them had been in on this thing. You know, we we only had one other uh, what we'll call a bad moment, and it was uh, it was very difficult for us. We uh, we mentioned earlier that uh, Morocco is divided into two. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but we were getting very near the southern end of what was Morocco before the addition of the Western Sahara. And everybody told us that it's the wild, wild west down there. And the closer you get to it, the wilder it gets. And it was kind of true. So we were in the last village. It's called Tarfaya. And uh, we, um, the next day we would cross over into the, um, the Western Sahara. And <clears throat> the, as we entered the Tarfaya, a gendarme spoke with us and 
had us fill out some papers, and sometimes they do that. Then he led us into this little town, which is kind of off the highway. Kind of a terrible little place, you know, typical little out-of-the-way village with, with not much money and uh, difficult life, it looks like. And um, But uh, the hotel was really awful. We had to carry the bikes up and the bags up up this flight of stairs, a long flight of stairs, and the, the hallway was only about two and a half feet wide. Couldn't even bring the, the bikes. We we like to bring the bikes inside with the bags on if we stay inside places because it's easier. You know, life is just easier. We learned how to live with the bags on the bikes most of the time and just take what we need out of them. Well, we couldn't do that there. So there were a couple of young guys, and they helped us haul things up. There was a tea house downstairs, and a lot of young guys in there drinking their tea and staring out at us like maybe they hadn't seen foreigners before. It's not a place where, where tour buses go, believe me, <laughs> which is part of the good when you're out on a bike and touring like that. But anyway, we got the bikes up, and there's a bath that's called a hammam. It's a community bath next door. And then we went to a little diner and had dinner, and uh, there were a lot of guys watching soccer, and they watched us for a while, but we came back and we were just dozing off to sleep. The room is probably, I'm going to say, at max, eight feet wide. And uh, the door on the room was just like a, a gate, a garden gate, you know, single pieces of wood with a cross member holding it all together. Yeah. So we're just dozing off and we heard footsteps on the stairs and somebody pounded on the door. And I jumped up and I went over and looked under the door. I could see uh, four guys, four sets of feet. And one guy said in French, open the door. And Kat answered him and she said in French, what do you want? And and he said in English, we want peace. Well, I mentioned before, this was only six months or so after the Iraq thing started. So we're a little nervous. I think there was a point there where uh, Mr. Um, Osama bin Laden had said uh, it's the duty of every Muslim to to kill a, a, a Westerner, and so we were a little nervous about it. I guess who wouldn't be? And yeah. um, we, I said, uh, "Hey, we want peace too. So go away. Let us sleep. Come and talk in the morning." And at that point, I was throwing our bags and quietly putting, stacking our bags and bikes and everything against the door. So it would make it more difficult for them to get in. There was only one little window that had bars on it. We were stuck. We were really stuck. And uh, they shuffled and talked among themselves. It seemed like a long time. Then they went away. And we lay back down. We said, okay, that's over with. Let's get some sleep. Just dozing off. Boom, boom, boom. They were pounding again. So we didn't say anything. They didn't say anything. They shuffled a little bit more, and then they left again. So that left us sleepless, of course, for most of the night. And then the, there's this uh, other part of that story. I woke up in the middle of the night feeling that diarrhea, that guff-guff coming on. So, But I didn't want to leave the room, really. And the, the only toilet there was a, what we call a squatter, and it was pretty bad. So, boy, I, I had to do something. There was this little tiny corner sink in the room, and I just hoisted up there and... Did what you got to do. Did what a man's got to do when he's got that guff guff. <laughs> so uh, oh, it was a bad experience and then a bad odor for the rest of the night. <laughs> You're stuck so in there with it. Uh, 
Yeah, we dealt with it, but we got up early and we got the heck out of there. That doesn't sound too bad overall. I mean, you lost 100 euros, you had a sleepless night, and you had to poop in a sink. Um, what about the good stuff? I mean, even even those bad things that you just mentioned, there were kind of some good little gems sparkled in there as well. What were some of the good things that happened to you while you were bike touring in Morocco? We were at an address telephone booth um, where we had been calling Abdella to talk to him about getting into uh, the Sahara Desert. Anyway, we made our calls, and then we decided to take off, and we were, oh, 15 kilometers down the road, and I asked Pat for something out of his telephone book, and he went to get it, and it wasn't there. So we decided that we must have left it in the telephone uh, telephone booth. So instead of us both going back, uh, Pat decided he would just stay there and, and with both of the bikes, and I would try and find a way back to the telephone booth. Anyway, this really nice man in a, in a taxi, they're called Combis, which is really just like a big van, and they pile as many people in as they can. Uh, it was pretty much full, but he was nice enough to throw me in and uh, got me down there. And he ended up taking, I was worried about getting back to Pat, and he ended up dropping all the other people off at all their stops that they uh, needed to go to. Then he took me, the telephone book was there. He waited for me, and he took me by myself all the way back uh, to where Pat was without any other passengers, which, you know, was really the way he was making his living. So he was really not only going out of his way to come back, um, but he was going without a full load, which was, you know, eliminating part of his income. So um, just, real, you know, niceties that make you feel good and know that there are good people in the world. What about you, Pat? Do you have any uh, positive memories from your bike tour in Morocco? We got off to a late start. It was actually the very day that we uh, were robbed of the 100 uh, euros at that place, uh, the hotel, and with the police, so it was a late start, and we stopped because it's the, uh, there's a uh, camel sale, camel auction. It's the only operating one in Morocco that's left, so we pulled in, and it was quite interesting, but with the delay, and, and we were sp- trying to ride 130 kilometers that day, what's that, 60, 70, almost 80 miles, something like that. And I, I don't think we mentioned this before, and if you hadn't heard us talk before, our bikes with the bags weighed just a little under 100, somewhere maybe around 90 pounds. So it was pretty pretty hard, good work to, to travel that distance, and it was longer than we usually go. But we got out at 100 kilometers, and Catherine started fearing it was getting dark. And one of our rules is we don't ride after dark. Another is we stop if we feel there's a threat to our health or safety. And the third rule is, Kat gets to decide when we stop. And she said, we got to stop. We can't go any further. Well, there weren't very many cars. And she wanted to try to get a ride. And we were hoping a fish truck would come along. There were a lot of empty fish trucks going down. They'd go down, way down to pick up sardines and bring them back. So nothing, nothing. And then uh, uh, a little Suzuki van came putt-putt-putting along. And Catherine waved her hands. And, and they pulled over. And the driver, his name was... Muji or something like that. He listened. Cat told him, but we're, we were afraid to ride in the dark. And 
if you're not familiar with the little Suzuki van, it's little. I mean, it is really little. And there were already uh, his brother-in-law, sister-in-law, and a baby in there, plus their luggage. He'd been up somewhere to pick them up from a bus stop or something, I guess. And he said, no, we can we can put everything in. Well, we looked. I, I didn't see any way that we possibly could. He found a way. We used our uh, straps. We had some cinch straps that we hold our bags on to tighten them down on the load. And we used those to tie uh, them onto the top of his van and um, the bikes and the bags we got inside. And we had bags on our laps and bag everywhere. And his his old the Suzuki, the battery was low. And in fact, when um, he tried to start it, it wouldn't start with all of us in the bags. And so the brother-in-law and I had to get out and push and get him started. Then um, we came to a uh, roadblock. They they have quite a few of these as you get further south. It's uh, just a, like a checkpoint, and everybody pulls up, and the gendarme just look and see who you are. And You know, it's not a big country, and there aren't that many people, especially there, so they look for strangers. Well, there we were, strangers. So he asked us to come inside and talk and fill some papers out, which we'd, we'd done that before. They just asked your mother's maiden name and things like that. Nothing big, but, but this poor guy... Muji, Mujo, whatever his name was, uh, he's out there da, 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 running his little car. And we finally got back, got in, and they even invited us to stay at their house. But we had decided that we're, we're going to take a day off for my birthday. We were coming in toward Tantan. We were in the town just before it. And so we decided we would take a day off in that town. Um, and uh, um, he took us to a nice little hotel. We got checked in. Um, the next morning we got up, we, we, it wasn't the beach. And we, I thought, well, why don't we go to the beach for my birthday? So we were loading the bikes, and we realized we'd lost two of our cinch straps. And I'm telling you, I just had told Cat, we'll never see those again. That's the end of that. And all of a sudden we hear honking, honking. We look up, here he is, waving like crazy, and he's got the straps holding them out the window. He drove all the way back into town just to make sure we had those straps. Uh-huh. So you never know. You know, you just never know about... Uh, um, people and I think you have to kind of trust your judgment and uh, what can we say go with the flow thanks for listening to the bicycle touring pro adventure podcast if you'd like to learn how to conduct your own incredible bike touring adventures travel the world and create experiences you'll remember for the rest of your life be sure to visit the website at BicycleTouringPro.com for the world's largest collection of information, tools, and resources you can use to live a life of true adventure. I'm Darren Alf. This has been the Bicycle Touring Pro Adventure Podcast. And thanks again to our guests this week, Pat and Kat Patterson. Be sure to visit their website at WorldRiders2.com. That's WorldRiders, the number two, dot com. For someone who is planning a tour, maybe as venturous as you around the world, or maybe just, you know, a short trip uh, from their home, do you have any words of wisdom, pieces of advice that you could give? Keep your mind open. Uh, keep positive attitude. Uh, when you get down in bad weather or whatever, just know that the next day is going to probably be better. You just have to go one day at a time. You can't make too many plans because things change from day to day. Um, I think the, the most thing is positive attitude and uh, keep going toward the goal that you want to achieve.